that it was from him. He coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul, because he would go through these seasons where Jesus was just so ever-present to him, and then all of a sudden, it would be like, where, where did you go? How did I get into this season of darkness? C.S. Lewis picked up on the writing of the dark night of the soul. So if you're familiar with the term, you might be more familiar with it more contemporarily through Lewis. And he would struggle with the dark night of the soul so much that if you read through some of his letters, he would actually believe that um, he, he would start to doubt his salvation. He, he struggled that mightily. Um, throughout the scriptures, we see examples of people that wrest, wrestled with contentment mightily. How, how often do you hear the psalmist cry out things like, Lord, where are you? Right when I need you the most is when I cannot seem to access you. I look to my right, you are not there. I look to my left, you are not there. It seems as if my prayers are hitting a ceiling of brass. We read those things throughout the Psalms. That's why the Psalms, I think, are something that we can connect with when we're at the heights of ecstasy and when we're at the pits of despair. There is always something in there in God's inspired word through the psalmist that can connect with us. How about the prophet Elijah, right after he comes down from Mount Carmel, having the greatest victory of maybe any of the prophets in the Old Testament, and he had just wiped out the entire religion of Baal worship. And then he comes down from the mountain, hears that this woman named Jezebel wants to kill him, goes and hides in the woods and says, God, take my life from me. Should I not be like those who were never even born? Blot me out. And the Lord even begins to sustain him in miraculous ways that he does not know. And still, he just can't see it until the Lord acts to actually call him out and say, Elijah, what are you doing here, man? What is going on? And he's still wrestling with contentment. How about Moses? Lord, you didn't, I didn't ask for these people. You're the one that gave me these people. And now they grumble. And everything I do, they fight me against. Wouldn't it have been better if you just wiped us all out in the wilderness? Oh, man, he had seasons of wrestling with the dark night of the soul. Even believers who have been walking with Jesus for a long time can wrestle with the issue of contentment. So if you're here and you're wrestling through this, I'm the last to point any fingers. But in an Advent series, I want to share a word of hope that you do not always have to wrestle with contentment. There is hope and there is victory to be found in Christ. So if you're wrestling with contentment, it doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian, but it does mean that you're selling yourself short on what Jesus has offered you as part of the Christian package that was yours when you came into faith through Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to be content or else passages like this would have never made the cut and made it into the Bible. So I have a few questions before you before I, I sort of gauge, I want to gauge where you're at with contentment before I engage the text. The first is simple and direct. Are you content? with where you're at in life right now. And I'm asking you to ask your own heart. Um, you know the answer to that. A second one is, does your faith in Christ bring you any more contentment than the person that doesn't have faith in Christ Jesus? And then the third is like it, are you in a season of restlessness right now? A content life is one of the most powerful witnesses that we have to show the world that there is power to be found 
and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this season where we see people define their happiness by the way that their needs can be materially met, the simple witness of contentment screams into the darkness. I mean, forget all of the kinds of cheesy canned evangelism. Contentment is a powerful evangelistic witness. Before I was a Christian, I am convinced as I look back and tell my story, you know, it's interesting. You start to give your testimony very early on in your faith, which is probably not the wisest thing in the world because your brain's still scrambled, especially when you come from the kind of background that, that I came from, and you're still kind of figuring out the pieces. And now as I look back on it with a little bit of maturity um, under me, I realized that before I was a Christian, contentment was all that I was looking for. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I lived with this constant nagging belief that it's got to get better than this. This can't be all that there is. Um, well, not only does a real Christ-centered abiding contentment make our life more rich and enjoyable, it's also a powerful tangible witness to an uncontent world that there is power in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would all experience that contentment in this Advent season, which is why we're in this text. So our text shows off with Paul telling the Philippians that he would have had every single reason to forfeit his contentment. Look with me at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So in this verse, Paul is thanking the Philippian church for their concern for him. He's grateful that they cared enough, that they were engaged enough in his life to be concerned for him. Um, does anybody else just think that that alone, that simple thing, is just one of the most beautiful things about being a part of the body of Christ, that there are people where you could say, you know what, I'm grateful that in this season where things were falling apart that you were concerned for me. And he even tells them, you've got reason. Your concerns were valid. I'm going through a lot here. But in the next verses, he tells them that even though they have legitimate ver reasons to be concerned, that he's going to be okay. And the reason that he's going to be okay is because in verse 11, he tells them that he had learned the power of being content. Look with me at verse 11. It says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul was able to reassure these guys, yes, I know you're concerned about me, but I'm going to be okay. Even if I'm not going to be okay, it's still okay. And the reason that he gave is because he had learned to be content. And this is significant. This thought is going to take up our whole time for the rest of this morning. Paul had every reason in the world not only to be uncontent, he had every reason in the world to be freaking out at this moment. Check this out. He was in prison as he was writing this. You could just stop right there, right? Or just say he was in prison. He has every reason to be freaking out. How many of you have forfeited your contentment in the last month for something less than being in prison? All right. So if we just stopped at the checklist right there, he was in prison. He was awaiting to meet the man who burned down Rome while he played the fiddle. 
That was, like, if everything goes right, he gets to meet with Nero. He was released from prison, and there were a group of people that were waiting to take his life. Check out these verses in Acts 23, 12 through 15. Well, those verses are excellent, too. Um, well, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath to neither eat nor drink till they'd killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this Oh, good word, conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and says, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath not to taste food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before the night comes. I don't know about you, but I've sometimes lost my contentment when somebody just says like an ill word about me or, or, or I can't understand the inflection or tone of a text message that was sent. Um, well, here you have 40 people that were vowing not to eat or drink until they kill this guy. Not only that, but all of the religious leaders wanted you killed. So let's say you know, not only are all your friends turning against you, but um, you find out after the service that Pastor Tim wants to kill you when you, uh, when you leave here. Uh, I've been in his crosshairs. It's not pretty. Um, and then not to mention that the 40 people that were just mentioned in these verses, that used to all be his best friends. Anyone ever have a friend turn against you before? Anyone ever have a broken relationship where somebody who was once in your corner begins to speak ill? Man, that is painful. So you can understand if Paul was freaking out a little bit. You can understand if he had decided this is a season where I have the right to hand over my contentment. But in the midst of this world falling apart all around him, he was able to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding that Tara read about in our devotional verses that were read before. And that, that, that's awesome. He actually had peace. This isn't a theory. This wasn't like Christianese that he was speaking. He was actually feeling peace. This guy had the right to pen these words because he was living this out by the power of the Holy Spirit. He had discovered the secret to being content. But Paul did not always have this attitude of contentment. Don't dismiss this passage by just thinking this guy was content by nature. That's so easy to do, right? You're just one of those content people. You're just one of those smiley, happy-go-lucky, everything-is-fine kind of people. You can't explain this away by saying that he was content by nature because human nature is not content. By nature, without Jesus Christ and without the Holy Spirit redeeming our hearts, we are not content people. I could prove it to you. Think back to the very first sin. This is just theologically, this blows my mind when I think about this. When you ask people what the first sin is, they say eating the fruit that God told them not to eat of. But think of this. Before the first sin actually ever even entered the world, Adam and Eve were wrestling with contentment. There was no sin in the world yet. But they're still wrestling with contentment. You say, how do you know that? Um, well, because I think lack of contentment is what actually led to the first mess that 
got us into this anyway. Think about this. The world was perfect. Everything was perfect. The garden was perfect. Their communion with God was perfect. They were living in absolute paradise. Think just like hanging out on the beach in Waikiki 24-7 with people bringing you pina coladas. And, and that's, they were living in paradise. And then the enemy comes along and whispers, hey, you know what would make things a little bit better? If you ate this fruit over here. What is he essentially saying? Hey, you know, you know what would make things a little bit more perfect? If you just had some of the, things were perfect. How could they get more perfecter if they were perfect? And Leah, I'm sorry, and I know that my grammar just drives you nuts, but more perfecter is the only way that I could describe what the enemy was really trying to bait them with. He's saying, I know that you have perfection, but here's a more perfecter kind of perfection. And now I'm just repeating it over and over to tick you off, so I'm sorry that I do that. But they're in paradise. And all it took was this simple idea that, hey, the grass might be greener over there for them to forfeit their contentment for the hope of a little bit more contentment. Man surrendered their contentment for the promise of more contentment. And we've never gotten it back ever since. And we're not going to get it back until Jesus Christ comes and sets up the second advent and rules and reigns on this earth. So people are still falling into the same trap. By our nature, we are so addicted to more that it takes something supernatural to give us the contentment that we're looking for. Because most American Christians are not all that different than most American non-Christians because we believe that the secret to contentment is having the itch for more fulfilled. I heard a story that I, I may have shared this with you guys before. But I think it just illustrates this point so perfectly. It's a story of a rich industrialist who is disturbed to find a fisherman just sitting lazily in his boat. And he comes over to the fisherman and says, why aren't you fishing? And the guy says, well, because I've caught enough fish for today. Well, why don't you go catch more fish than you need? The rich man asked. Well, what would I do with them? Said the man who was laying in his boat. You can earn more money, he said, growing impatient. You can buy a better boat. And then you could go deeper, and then you could catch more fish, and then you could purchase nylon nets, and then you could make more fish and more money. And soon, you'd have a fleet of boats, like my fleet of boats over there, and you could be rich like me. And the fisherman asked, well, then what would I do? And he said, well, you could sit down and just enjoy life. And he said, like I was doing before you came over? <laughs> Isn't this the heart? of wrestling with contentment, brothers and sisters. People look at contentment as if it's something that's right out there. And it's something that you seek to attain, but it's a little bit outside of your grasp. But the key word in this passage is that he had learned. Paul, by nature, had the same restless spirit. He was born with the same restless spirit that you and I were born with, but he learned to be content. So he can't write off his contentment as if he had some kind of unique anointing that allowed him to keep from obsessing over his circumstances. And we can't just excuse our lack of contentment by looking at him and saying, well, he, he's different. He, he's super Paul. He's not super Paul. He's a knucklehead sinner, just like you and me. We can't 
look at these guys as if they're heroes. They're not heroes. There's one hero in the Bible. His name is Jesus, and they nailed him to a cross. I think that the part that... It blows my mind that he knew that things were never going to be all all right. Like, he, he couldn't just look and say, you know, I can say I'm going to be content because I'm projecting and soon I'll be out of here, and everything is going to be okay. He finally accepted the fact that there was never going to be a season in his life where everything lined up and everything was perfect on this side of heaven. And most of us struggle with accepting that very simple reality. I don't know if that's difficult for you to hear, that there will never be a time in your life, this side of glory, that everything is going to line up and be perfect, and that you're going to have that perfect set of circumstances. And you're just like, man, if it was just these three things in my life that just got ironed out, you know what's going to happen when those three things get ironed out? You're going to hit a snag on a fourth thing that's going to bring up seven more things. And then you're going to be like, oh, as soon as these seven things, and then you're like a dog chasing its tail in a circle. We give lip service to the devastating effects of sin on the earth, but we still believe in the back of our minds that sometime in our life that we might have this perfect utopia that allows us to be content. And just as a little tangent, having perfect circumstances is an illusion. It's never going to happen to you. It's a lie from the enemy. You know what it is? It's a lie to keep you from enjoying this life. I can remember this one time. I was sitting on the beach, and I was listening to, uh, I can remember so vividly. I can even remember, like, the tune. I was listening to Van Morrison's Hymns to the Silence, and I was reading a book, and I was just looking out, and right before then, I was worrying about something, and then I, something startled me. I was like, I'm not worrying anymore. I'm just enjoying the sound of Van the Man, and, and I'm digging what I'm reading, and I'm enjoying looking out at the beach. This is Oh, God, you're so good. And then the thought actually crept in my head. Well, what was that thing I was worrying about again? Oh, yeah. And then I just went back to worrying about it. It was absolutely insane. And I don't usually have, like, portals into my own insanity like that. But that was, like, one where I'm like, holy cow, man, go seek help as soon as you leave here because you're nuts. And Paul needed to learn that being content, even if his situation never improved, is where he needed to get to. And, that, and his situation had to go beyond what he was experiencing in current time. I'm sure that Paul, we began to experience this. The dude was probably like Neo in the Matrix, man. He's like, whoa, I am the chosen one. Probably starting to pull all kinds of jack moves like that. It was probably pretty cool. But he started to realize, guess what? I don't have to buy the enemy's lie anymore. I don't have to believe the enemy that I can't be content in the midst of all of this stuff going on. I don't have to wait for everything to change in order of my life, in order to experience contentment. I could be content right now. And I'm sure that when Paul began to understand this, it was probably one of the most amazing truths that he ever wrapped his mind around. When you begin to understand that you don't have to wait for circumstances to change in order to be content, it will be a breakthrough for you as well. Because isn't contentment the thing that everyone is seeking? I mean, think about just kind of the, the insanity that goes on this time of year. If I just run around and, and, and make myself just a little bit more nuts than, um, you know, maybe when Ralphie opens up the Red Rider uh, BB gun, I can't believe that I messed that up. I've been called Ralphie for my whole life, and I, um, that, that everything is going to be okay. And think about it, man. It isn't what most 
people are doing out there, just a quest to be able to confine contentment. Everybody wants to be content, man. Everybody wants to believe that if things line up just right, then they would be able to be content. But, you know, I've used this quote before, and I've always been hesitant to say who said it, because, like, whenever you quote somebody that's nuts, people think that you're just endorsing all of their um, stuff. But I think that this is more powerful, actually, when, I, when you consider the source. It's not our circumstances that create our contentment or discontentment. It is solely us. Let me read that again. It's not our circumstances that create our contentment or discontentment. It's solely us. That comes from Ayn Rand, the um, atheist writer who um, is very antagonistic against Christianity. And it seemed like she had a little portal into contentment. It's a shame that she never pursued it. Discontent people will not be content no matter what happens to their circumstances. Do you understand that? I mean, if you're a discontent person, you will not find contentment by simply having your circumstances change. Too many people rob themselves of the ability and the joy of being content because they keep thinking that contentment is something that they're going to find later, after we've worked out all of their issues. You know, I've done enough counseling with enough of you to tell you none of you are going to work out all of your issues. And it's not just unique to this church. If I was preaching this at any other church, I could say I've never done any counseling with any of you, and I could tell you that none of you are going to work through all of your issues. If you had a chance to work through all of your issues, guess what? You wouldn't need a gospel, and you wouldn't need a savior. You're your own savior once you figured out how to work out all of your issues. The gospel reminds us that the world has fallen and so are we and no amount of ingenuity, right planning or right thinking can change that without the gospel. So we can't set our hope on just hoping that this falling world is going to line up for us and give us the results that we're looking for. The fallenness in this world is intended to force our eyes upon a redeemer. Not to just try to tinker with this flawed world until we can make it perfect. Yet we see in this passage that you not just seek contentment, he found contentment through Jesus. And that's what gives us hope. That's what I want to preach to you this morning. That's the hope in this passage. He found the secret to being content. And the secret to being content, it's crazy that it's not complex and it's not even a secret. In fact, it's, it's so simple that it's probably too simple. It's so simple that we say, oh, I've, I've heard that before. Or that's easy for you to say, but I've actually got some real problems going on in my life. Guess what? So did Paul. Guess what? So do I. Um, and I'm sure you do too. I don't want to minimize your problems. But I do want you to know that you can be content in the midst of them. The thing that just kills me is that for too many Christians, contentment is something that just always seems to be like right there, right outside of their grasp. Contentment is like a mirage that kind of dangles in front of them out in the distance. Uh, contentment is that thing that many people try to keep chasing, but it lies just outside of your grasp. And it's not the situation that you're in that keeps you from being content. 
Okay, get, get that. It's not the situation you're in that keeps you from being content. You've got to get rid. If you, if, if you hear nothing else this morning, you've got to get rid of the if only, then I'll be happy kind of thinking. It's a lie from the enemy who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And as long as you live with that mindset that contentment will always be something that's looming on the horizon, but a little bit outside of your grasp. And we don't have to miss out. God wants you to be content. But if I'm growing towards contentment, and I'm growing towards Christ, then God's honored in that. But to truly understand this, we need to understand the truth in verse 12. So on to the next verse. He says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul's learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. And isn't this where we want to get to? That the situations that we read here in verse 12, that Paul is able to be content in the midst of are mind-blowing. Paul was content in living in humble circumstances or being brought low. That means no matter how bad things got for Paul, he was able to be content. Marcy and I actually had the privilege to go to the maritime prison where Paul wrote 2 Timothy, um, the place where he spent his final days before he was um, beheaded. The ceiling was about five feet high in this place, so it wasn't tall enough that he could ever stand up. It was underground under Nero's palace, so it never got warmer than 50 degrees. Rome was the city on seven hills, um, and this is the low point of the city. Um, I don't mean to be crass, but if you live on top of a hill, do you know where your sewage goes? I'm going to give you, sewage doesn't flow uphill. Um, it, it, it goes downhill. He actually had a little hole underneath his prison where all of the sewage would flow directly from the palace right under the hole, and that was the place where he would be able to get his drinking water from. So picture living your whole life for the Lord as sold out as Paul was, and now approaching old age and living in a room that's too short for you to stand up always freezing, always reeks like sewage, and you're awaiting to die by the hands of a psycho. I can remember the, this guy who was a mentor to me led us in a, a singing of It Is Well With My Soul in there, and the songs echoed around the room. He said, it is well with my... It would just echo around. You think that you could sing It Is Well With My Soul in such circumstances is mind-blowing. But the reason he led us to sing that is because Paul truly, at that place, was able to say it as well. And when you see that Paul was content living in these humble circumstances, it shows you that contentment must run deeper than the circumstances. It's not a cheesy, everything-is-perfect, plastic Sunday morning kind of churchianity contentment. He said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I have learned to be content in these humble circumstances. And again, there's nothing special about Paul. God is not a respecter of man. The Bible doesn't hold up Paul, so you could look at Paul and say, I want to be like Paul. Paul shares about contentment that he found, and the whole point is to point to Christ and to give glory to Christ. And he says that he learned contentment in the midst of prosperity and abundance in that verse. That's a funny one. I know some of you are thinking like, yeah, man, I'd like to try to be content with a little abundance over here. Um, but especially if you're struggling to make ends meet, 
you're probably thinking it would be a lot easier to be content in a time of prosperity. I just want to encourage you, read any statistics and you'll see that it's no easier to be content in prosperity than it is in poverty. Um, in fact, statistics usually show the opposite, that, that those in extreme poverty don't have as many areas of contentment to wrestle through. He learned how to be content when facing extreme hunger, he says. And then on the flip side, he says he learned to be content when he was full. And that makes me think of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Check this verse out. It's so cool. It says, remove from me the falsehoods of lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny the Lord. And say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Um, when we're full, isn't that the easiest time to forget God? That's why we fast, so that it's a remembrance that those hunger pangs are to drive us into the presence of Jesus Christ. And forgetting God is the easiest way to just forfeit your contentment. He even goes on to say that he is content in great need. I'm so grateful that that part of the verse is in there because most conversations I have to people who are forfeiting their contentment, this is the issue right here. Some people have been tricked into believing that they'll never be content as long as some significant need is out there that still needs to be met. If they were able to get that job that they were applying for, if they were able to just get their house to sell so that they could be able to move on to the next stage of their life, if they were able to get that raise that they've needed, if they were able to just get the new shiny for Christmas, but what happens when you get the new job and you're still you and you're not content? This verse right here is evidence that contentment is not something that happens on the other side of having your needs met. Paul learned to be content in the midst of great needs. So why is he so content in the midst of all of this? Because Paul did not live with the myth of if-onlys in his life. If only this happened, then I'd be happy. If only this happened, then I'd be content. Paul decided to learn, he says. Learn to be content in the midst of of all of the stuff that he breaks out in verse 12. And, and when he says learn to be content, that Greek tense there of the verb doesn't just mean that someday back then he learned or he decided to be content. It actually means that he continually made a conscious, ongoing decision. This was not a one-time deal like our justification through Christ. This is why I love Greek verbs. There's some things that are just, boom, one-time deal, and it's settled. And then this one, it's saying... No, this is an ongoing learning. I continued to learn to be content in the midst. And isn't that the way contentment works? You brothers and sisters who are a little bit more mature in your faith, can you not look at things and say, you know, I've learned to be able to not just give myself and forfeit my contentment in areas that I used to? Paul continually had to make the decision to be content. It was part of putting on his full armor of God each Morning. So how did he do it? What is the secret to being content? It tells us right here in the final verse that we're going to cover this morning. In verse 13, I guarantee you half of you have this hanging in your bathroom. And let me read this, this verse. I'm not dogging. I like to read scripture when I go to the bathroom. I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Just a show of hands. How many of you have that hanging in a plaque in your bathroom? Ah. Bergstrom's, I know you do. Raise your hand. I've seen it at your house. Why wouldn't you admit it? It's awesome. <laughs> this is one of the most abused scriptures in the whole Bible, isn't it? 
The all things is so often taken out of context. The all things that Paul is speaking of in the context is the ability to be content in every situation. Paul's saying, I know my situation looks bleak and hopeless, and there's no reason that I should be able to be content by now, but I can do all things, like even be content in the middle of this horrific thing that I'm going through because of Christ who strengthens me. That's the context of Philippians 4.13. All things contextually is linked to contentment, and it proves that Not only is contentment not circumstantial, but get this, contentment is not something inside of you. Before I was a Christian, contentment was the one thing that I was looking for. I'm convinced that every substance that I ever did, all of my just tomfoolery that I was doing in the world is because the... I was just constantly trying to deal with the fact that I wanted to be out of myself. I did not feel right in my own skin, and I just wanted to get my brain to shut up for a moment and find a moment of contentment. So I would read these, I would read these books that would tell you how through right breathing and looking inside of yourself, you would be able to find contentment. But you know what? When I looked inside of myself, I didn't find contentment. I found more darkness. Thank God. Because if I found something in myself that was worthwhile, I don't know that I would have ever been forced to fix my eyes upon a Savior. Contentment doesn't come from your circumstances, and it doesn't come from looking inside of yourself either. Contentment comes from looking outside of yourself and looking at the cross and looking at Jesus who will supply your strength because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You will never have the perfect circumstances for contentment. Your sin-sick heart will never be so at peace where you're just going to say, I can rest. Contentment comes through Jesus and His Holy Spirit supplying the strength that you need at the moment that you need it, giving you this day your daily bread. During this Advent season, you will be brought low at some time, and you'll be brought to the place probably daily where you have something that could steal away your contentment. And you could decide, am I going to look elsewhere, or am I going to look at Christ to find my contentment? And the ones that pursue Christ are the ones that are going to be content. So if Jesus is the secret to being content, then why are there so many discontent Christians? Anyone ever ask themselves that? And let's personalize it. If Jesus is the secret to being content, and I know Jesus, then why am I not content so often? Um, The answer goes back to the same answer that um, started this all the way back in the garden. We don't truly believe that Jesus is enough sometimes. So we look other places to find contentment. We believe that Jesus plus something will give us the contentment that we're craving. Jesus plus financial stability. Jesus plus a change in our living situation. And then we're surprised when we get that and it turns out to be a disaster. And the verse doesn't say, I can do all things through Christ plus a fat bank account that gives me strength. Um, One of the best books I've ever read on this topic was called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Well, guess what, guys? The opposite is true. Jesus plus something equals nothing. When you think that you have to add the Jesus in order to fill in Jesus, 
than you have actually taken away from Jesus because Jesus is complete and he's awesome. So all the circumstances in the book of Philippians were designed so that people would cast their eyes squarely upon Jesus as the sole means of their strength. Not Jesus plus changing a situation or Jesus plus mustering up inner fortitude. Jesus is the one that strengthens us. And, and one quick point before I give you some uh, application to close with. Being a part of the body of Christ is how he closes these last verses. And being a part of the body of Christ is critical for ongoing contentment. Paul closes the letter by telling the church that they are such an encouragement to him along the way. We need the body of Christ if we're going to live a content life. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us to not neglect the gathering, but to encourage one another day after day. Paul received so much joy and contentment. He was able to experience contentment because of Jesus, but he was also able to experience Jesus through the Philippian church. And let me just tell you guys, I know how he must have felt. I'm not just saying this because nobody paid me to say this. I am so content being your pastor. I mean, it is such a joy. I get to go to work and study the Bible for a living. I get to hang out with people such as yourself. I get to tell people about the Savior, and I get to make a living from it. You guys encourage me towards contentment, just like Paul was saying in this passage. And I think it's because of this that he pushes them hard to consider contentment because they also helped him in his walk in contentment. And that's where I want to close today, considering the contentment of those who met Christ. Think of Simeon when he beheld the newborn king, and he said, I can depart in peace. You know what he's saying? I'm content, guys. I'm outie. I'm gone. Think of Mary in the Magnificat. My soul exalts in the Lord. Think of the Magi. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And in this you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the result of your faith the salvation of your souls. They rejoiced, man. Those guys partied. So if you're here and you've been wrestling with contentment your whole life, I just want to encourage you. Have you stepped into a relationship with Jesus? We want to invite you to grab on to him as your Lord and your Savior, to bend your knee and say, I am not the Lord of my life. You are. I've looked inside, and that's not worked, so I want to look to you. Jesus, come into my life, and he will. And if you're here and you know Jesus and you're struggling with contentment, I encourage you, brother and sister, do not struggle alone. That's what the body of Christ is here for. And I want to encourage you to experientially taste of that in a moment. We're going to take communion where you can come up and actually taste the beauty of the fact that his body was broken for you. His blood was shed for the remission of your sins. And he has given us all that we need in Christ to be content in him. God, thank you for the contentment that we have in Jesus. May we be a content, ever-growing and content people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to partake of communion in a moment. But here's the thought that I wanted to, I wanted to give you a Christmas thought for communion. Communion is usually a very Easter kind of